you definitely have to have a willingness to take a risk, obviously, but not just risk for risk's sake. There has to be a bigger meaning to it, meaning if it doesn't work out the way you want, if it doesn't serve the purpose in the boardroom or whatever, it did serve the purpose of the, to your point, the culture. And I knew that it was something that people within the company would love. And so for me, it was already a win. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Quincy Carroll, a product executive with a passion for delighting users, fans, and communities through customer-centric applications and services. Now, Quincy is anything but your typical career history. He studied music, English, tried being a stockbroker, rang a startup for daycare of immigrant children. Yet all these numerous roles and responsibilities helped him find out the product was the place for him. He worked at Apple, creating GarageBand with Steve Jobs, helped change the search engine at eBay, scaled Crunchyroll, the world's lightest manga streaming platform, from 300,000 to 3 million users. But one thing that will strike you about Quincy is that he's able to make difficult decisions and brave calls throughout his career. From changing those algorithms of eBay to scaling the companies and hiring remote workers from all over the world to grow his business. Yeah, this is going to be a fun and informative podcast. So let's dive in to hear how it got started for Quincy and how and where his journey has taken him. My very first job, actually, I worked at Warner Records. I was male person, like delivers mail. And I saw Eddie Van Halen actually walking down the hall one one time as I was delivering mail was awesome. And I had all types of run-ins like that, like famous musicians. So that was cool, but like really low paying. And I just had no, no future. (laughs) (laughs) So then I got a job as a grant writer. And this was like, well, I have an English degree and I can write. So I'm going to write grants and raise money. And I worked for this nonprofit company in downtown LA. It was kind of like daycare for immigrant children. It was in like the Skid Row area of downtown LA. I worked there for almost two years, basically just like raising money for this company. And that again was a little bit challenging because I was, I wanted to get married and having a job like that, it's going to be tough to, yeah, yeah. so I got a job as a stockbroker, which was, I was like, well, and really the appeal there was that I could learn, like I had to take the series seven and pass the series seven. So in order to do that, you spend like six months basically like studying, you know, yeah, and learning about business. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was kind of my first entree into like business, formal business. Didn't really enjoy it because it really turned out to be more of like a sales job. Anyway, long story short, there was a music company in the Bay Area that was doing music technology stuff. And I was like sort of a pretty advanced user of their system. And so I got a job working for them. And that was like kind of my first product job. So. I got into tech basically because I was really into music and like passionate about music. That then was like maybe like a six year stint, like run of music or digital media related product jobs, which included like, I went to a startup that went public. It was a streaming media company, sort of like at the end of the dot-com era. And then went into business school at Stanford. I actually studied, continued studying uh, music engineering. There's a program at Stanford called CCRMA and Karma, 
And so that I took uh, <laughs> audio engineering at, across the, it was called across the street. And I studied in their master's program to do audio engineering. So when I got out with the business degree, I was snooping around at Apple, just kind of like trying to find out what's going on. Is anybody working on, I knew about a company that they acquired in Germany that was doing audio. Like it was like an audio system. So they were called eMagic. So I asked around, like, is anybody working on that acquisition or any products related to it or anything like that? And I literally got directed to the guy, the one guy that was working on that project directly for Steve Jobs to build GarageBand, which became That's basically awesome. the consumer audio software. Yeah. That, that was must have uh, been an amazing experience then, right? Like you getting shouted at every day or, or you know, starting at sunrise and finishing sunrise two days later. Was. Like what? Sunrise to sunrise. Yeah, it really was. I was working till sunrise every day. It's crazy, especially because the engineering team was in Germany. But I really learned the majority of like the fundamental things that I still kind of like consider essential for being a product person. Yeah. Uh, working on that launch. Like the launch date was so critical. Steve Jobs would like have to present the product at, at Macworld. And there's just like no chance to like there was no opportunity to get out of that. That's just like we're launching on this date and it has to be ready. There's just like no other alternative. So all that pressure was great. And the experience was awesome. Then I I left Apple to actually start my own thing. And that was music instruction software. We come to the end of like a, a period of time that was like just like music tech related. And that was kind of like I would say that that defined like that portion of my my career. And so the inflection point, I think, was when that, that startup that I was working on that was doing like music instructions kind of got just hammered by YouTube. YouTube came out and just crushed it. Basically, everything related to like music instruction was now free. So that kind of ended that experience. So like you've done, pivoted your career like five times already at this stage, right? Like yeah. you've gone from extremes and domains, like, like helping immigrants to like being a stockbroker, you know, from you know, writing sort of patents to like creating audio music startups, working in public health and then like standing in front of Steve Jobs and getting shouted at at, at 5 a.m. because it's got to be ready two months time. Like there's pretty big contrast there, right? And yeah. What were you taking along the way? Like what, what were the little nuggets that you were sort of learning about yourself in some respects about what you did like? Like knowing you, you have this entrepreneurial gene in you, but you're also like really execution focused, right? Like you're great yeah. at breaking down tough problems and like getting right. sure that they get shipped. Yeah. How did you sort of develop those skills yeah. in, in some of these roles? And what, what did you sort of, were you letting go of as you were going along and what were you taking in? Yeah, I would say that sort of identified product as an area that was a good fit for me. I mean, I always struggled. I took like the, what color is your parachute? tests and I've, I've done a ton yeah, of like Myers-Briggs discs you yeah. name it like I, I need a model to help me understand what I need to do in my life yeah, yeah I've, I've been there I've, I've done them all yeah I love yeah. it yeah and it always comes back to like writer I'm like <laughs> well what am I supposed to do with that <laughs> so yeah, it's so good yeah just writer so it's like okay well I need to have a job of some kind so like I sort of gravitated towards product because it's the right blend of all the different disciplines. That's why I really do love the, the job because on the one hand, 
you can be in a room with a bunch of data scientists and be like, you have to be able to go toe to toe with those people. Oh yeah. Otherwise it's like, you're not going to be invited back to the meeting. Like forget it. <laughs> and then on the other hand, it's like, you have to be able to sit with the marketing people and you have to be able to work with them to understand where they're coming from. You have to be able to work with the CEO who's got all the pressure of the board and all these other things going on. And then there's the finance team. And, and then of course the engineers, like the engineers are like your lifeblood and engineers are just, they think in a totally different way than the whole rest of the company. So it's like, you have to be able to incorporate all those different perspectives into the job. That's why I really, I really sort of gravitate. So like, if there's one common thing, I think prior to finding that first product job, I was floundering a little bit like the grant writing and the stockbroker thing. But once I kind of latched on to that first product role, I, I really haven't changed in my mind. I haven't in terms of like my, the discipline mm-hmm. of the job. Yeah. 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 The only thing that's really changed is going from like individual contributor to group manager to like a department head. And now it's, it's less about like the actual function of the role as it is like either mentoring other people or, or setting up the team in such a way that the chemistry is right. So that you can kind of like a lot of those things around like team building can kind of work themselves out because you have like great people. It's more become like a team mentality as opposed to like the individual function of product. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? Even the time you're describing, right? Like this is sort of whatever, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Like I don't really know there was a product function then really in some respects, right? Like that discipline was sort of like get stuff done. Hey, you, you, yeah. you, seem, you seem to know how to get some stuff done. So like, right. can you put all this stuff together? And I, I even still like, I think that craft discipline, whatever you want to call it, is still forming, right? And, yeah. you know, and because you also saw some pretty interesting stuff, right? Like, you know, you did the Apple thing, but then next you were sort of in eBay when, when that company was actually like, eBay is probably one of the most perfect business models maybe ever created in some yeah. respects, right? Yeah, it was just sure. really well designed, really well executed. Um, at the time, it sort of, came into being and the internet was sort of maturing at the right point, right? Can yeah. you share like some of the, the sort of lessons you learned as you were sort of working there and about yeah. what, it, what it meant to do uh, the role yeah. well, or what were some of the yeah. things that sort of stood out to you? Yeah. I mean, I was there during the period when it was going through the transition to managed marketplace. So it really had been, you know, all the stuff that, that uh, is happening even now, like with Facebook, where they're saying, well, we're just kind of hands off. Like we don't really get involved, you know? And, and it's like, well, how much do you actually get involved? eBay was really like completely, like we're totally hands off. It's a, it, we're just a venue. Like people just come in and they trade and that's it. We have no responsibility over what happens. If you cut off your hand and sell to somebody and ship it to somebody, like it's not our problem. But I was there during the, the period where Amazon was really starting to become a, a major, Amazon really hadn't been a competitor, but like was becoming a competitor. Right, right. And so, yeah. And the reason they were was because they had figured out, I mean, really the fulfillment part of it, like they pretty much nailed overnight shipping. Every time you have a consistent experience, every time there's no chance you're going to receive something that's not as described or broken or something like that. So really the projects that I worked on there were like platform level things. The team that I was on for search, we were the first release of a search engine on eBay that was determined by like an algorithm as opposed to an auction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Because eBay really, its roots were in auction. And so like the way that you would find things was based off their end time because auctions always come to an end. And they knew that, you know, the last minutes of an auction are the time when you have like the majority of the, the price increase. I and remember so, all the little bots you could sort of get to like put your bid in like one millisecond before, right? That was all the yeah, fun exactly. stuff you were. Yeah. So that, those last few minutes are the most important. So therefore, it made sense that you would organize the search engine so that when you search for something, you're seeing the, la- the things that are showing up at the end. Because it was all just like this cycle of show the things that are ending. The last majority of the price increase happens at the end. So therefore, everything just works. But it's pretty simple. I mean, it's really kind of like, Simple. So then when they started offering like more and more fixed price items, like iPods at this time, the iPod was the thing. It just didn't make sense. It's like you'd have like a hundred different iPods, it brand new in a box. And like this one's ending in five minutes and this one's ending in 10 minutes. And this one's ending tomorrow. And it's like, why does it even have to end? Why is it ending? <laughs> it's just in, But everything, that's how everything was, was sorted. Yeah, yeah. So um, believe it or not, our challenge as a team, as a search team, was to convince the company. And this was like crazy. We had these like summit meetings where like all the heads of every single category would come together and just like flaming, like, there's no way you can ever beat time ending soonest. (laughs) You will never beat time ending soonest. And so, yes. So we literally, we called it tests. TES, time ending soonest. So that was the thing that our goal was, can we beat tests? And fortunately, we had a guy who was like kind of running the algorithm de- development, who's a good friend of mine, this guy, Olivier, who came from the Paris office, who was basically, who had already proven in the Paris eBay office that it could be done. Like he basically did the skunk works thing where he figured out like how to basically dramatically improve sales with this new search engine. So he came out and he, and he's like, <laughs> he didn't make a lot of friends. He was super smart, you know, and really knew yeah. what he was doing. But he brought this consultant with him that was like really abrasive. And I was on this team with these guys. And there were just a lot of like major blowout arguments and stuff like that. Because, you know, everybody was like on the hook for certain revenue targets. And if you just yeah. all of a sudden switch the entire ordering of everything and, you know, you're talking about like, categories that are generating hundreds of millions in revenue, you know, just individual categories. Yeah. yeah. These people are really concerned about the change. So anyway, that was a really dramatic change. And when it happened, we had to also, so some sellers started like basically going out of business as a result, because the way that the ranking worked, their stuff just didn't show up anymore. And the reason for that was because we, we were putting in things like, what's the quality of the seller? Like there were like seller factors. Like in terms right, of like, right, right, right. And so if you're, if you had like poor feedback or like you had ratings that were like, Oh, didn't ship on time or things like that, that would actually hurt your visibility. And so all that was like new that never happened on eBay before, like from the time it started, never had anything like that. So we also did so a how, lot of how like, how do you bring yeah. change to that? Like, there, like there's some pretty f- profound things you're describing there. Like one internally, like you're messing yeah. with incentive structures, right? Like if yeah. somebody's category is like, you know, they've a num- they've a magic number and they're hitting their number, and you're like, we're going to change the rules of the game because we think we could benefit the company more. Yeah. But the person has optimized their whole their whole working process around them. Yeah. 
hitting this magic number with just like, as you say, the test at time ending right now. Right. And, and you're like, well, we're going to change some variables here, but we think it's going to be better. And yeah. then on the opposite side of the sort of market, you've had these sellers who have figured out like how the system works and they're just, exactly. you know, like shipping, shipping rubbish basically, or that yeah. they're, you know, they don't think about reviewers. And yeah, there was a tool called TurboLister that literally eBay created and it was made so that you could load in tens of thousands of the identical item and fire them off into the system on a regular clip so that your stuff would show up at the top. It was an eBay tool, TurboLister. Well, I, I remember around that time, like there were so many of these like, like little tools, right? I think another one of them was like, the, you, you know, I was saying where you'd the put sniping, in like, this, yeah. yeah, the sniping. Yeah. Like what, yeah. what would I pay? And then like one millisecond before it ends, like, I think you, you, yeah. you must have got like 10 million requests. Yeah, totally. just goes yeah. Boom, right? And, yeah. and then try, trying to like change that whole way of thinking, right? To bring yeah. algorithms in or, or like really like looking at different variables to actually create quality rather than yeah. just like quantity of stuff. That was a major. And I'll tell you what it, what it really came down to where things really changed was when we were able to actually A-B test the changes. So prior to 2005, A-B testing was a thing, but it wasn't really like the whole lean startup philosophy. Yeah, yeah. It was just like coming out. It wasn't like well socialized. It wasn't like everybody was doing test and iterate. That wasn't a thing. It was like right there. It was like right on the verge. And eBay with its massive infrastructure and tech debt, like to implement A-B testing at that scale across the entire platform, was like really hard, but that was the job. And that was why I've, I still like my boss, I think of as just having done an incredible job because he sort of made it, he forced it to happen. Like basically he got the resources and ensured that we could actually do proper AB testing. But, but it was very offline initially. It was very much like we were taking tons of data and then just doing offline analysis to figure out like, like we would run a test and then the majority of the time was spent, like it could be weeks or even a month to comb through the data to see if there was a lift or not. It's so interesting when you talk about like this stuff in like in the early days of this, right? Because so many people have challenges about trying to get their ideas even launched or support for it, right? And, you know, you're talking about, like, as you say, firestorms in these meeting rooms where you've got category owners who are like saying, no way, like time ending now is the is the only way we're ever going to do this uh, business model or this product, right? It's working for us or it's working for me at least. And, and then you're trying to like introduce new technologies like algorithms where you can get information from different sources. And then you're even trying to think of like comparing and contrasting or like using this AB type philosophy. It doesn't even exist as, a, as a, probably a, a method that most people even understand. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff going on. Like how... How did you start like win, winning people over then? Like, because that, there was you know, carnage for sure. There, there was yeah. carnage. I mean, a lot of people didn't make it through that transition, <laughs> but, uh, which is normal. I've noticed now after seeing these types of things a couple of times there, that happens. But that's, that's one point. Some people don't make it, but like, what are some of the takeaways you have from that? Like, how do you do that? With something that critical across the entire company, the summit meeting thing, even though there was a lot of fire, was still kind of critical because that was a way for people to have their voices heard. And agreements were sort of made at the summit about, like some people would say, well, 
you know, I know you're going to do this in this category, but can we have one factor that kind of bumps up this one thing? Because, you know, so you'd have these sort of like give and takes of like, we call them business rules, which we basically separated out from just the algorithm. It was like the algorithm was like the natural order. And then you'd have these like business rules. And those were generally like negotiated agreements. So that's kind of how it played out. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, like, and that's great. Like this notion of being heard is so important. And then, you know, using your natural variable intuition and then like customizing it a little bit to the business proprieties. That's interesting to hear you sort of figure it out in that way, you know, yeah. for all the firestorms and table flipping that probably went on to get there. Right. But yeah, it's almost like a release valve. It's like you've got this search engine, which could absolutely just blow up somebody's business as they understand it. But it was sort of like you had this little this little way to kind of like back it off if you needed to. Interesting. Yeah. Unlike today's search ranking functions, which they're generally all sort of like, like you've got machine learning and it's less about hand tuning. Like we were doing a lot of hand tuning of the individual factors and like weightings. So like it was easy to explain to people how, how an individual factor worked and like what its impact was on the overall algorithm. So in that way, it was easy to sort of like have those conversations. Whereas I don't know about today, like, I don't know if eBay's back to hand tuning or if they're, if the whole thing is just this black box or what, but I don't know how you do it without, without those types of controls. One of the people I'm doing stuff with at the moment is uh, Bill Higgins, right? And he looks after IBM Watson. And this is like a huge sort of challenge for them at the moment, right? Like, cause it's not about, as you say, like a, the, the classic software paradigm today has been like, write the requirements, like describe how the system will operate yeah. and then we'll, we'll execute those requirements, those guidelines that we've created. And in this machine learning paradigm, you're describing like the goals that you want to achieve. And then you just dump a whole load of data into this computer and it just like runs every variant that you can think of and tells you, oh, the, the magic answer is obviously 42, right? And don't question it. Right. Because we've the smartest data scientists in the world working on this and they're right. they're doing the right thing. And the data we're feeding them is like good data. So right. you know, like 42 is the answer. Like let's move on now. You know, like that that conversation you're describing in this world of like, you know, the fire meetings, tables getting flipped, but people are collaborating. Yeah. It's difficult, but they're collaborating. I'm yeah. really curious to see like how people are gonna cope with that scenario because it's alien. Yeah. I mean, I think in the case of what we were doing, there was actually some early machine learning happening even at that time. And we had like a portion, it was like a, basically a factor within the algorithm that was dedicated to the machine learned factor. So you sort of had like the hand tuned ones and you had like a business rule. And then you had a machine learning portion that was like, how did it do? So like we could sort of like test it. It generally didn't do very well, but um, <laughs> probably now they have a much more advanced thing and it's probably working. I don't know. You know, so we met when you were like getting back into sort of streaming stuff again at Crunchyroll, yeah. right? Like, you know, you've done the eBay thing. Now you're jumping around, like getting into yeah. manga and like building some right. st- streaming right. type stuff. Like, yeah, obviously total linear progression there. Like what made you sort of jump? From, you know, you're working in this, uh, like marketplaces, uh, uh, like people, two-sided markets, people selling. And then next thing you decide you want to go work in manga and create streaming. The company had been around for like over a decade before I joined. 
And so a lot of the stuff wasn't on the market. There wasn't like something available that could do, you know, a certain type of service, like the payment system or subscription system, or just like their data systems. They even built their own like e-commerce store. I mean, like, and that's like, like today you would just, uh, you would never even think to do that. So there were a lot of those types of things that we actually had to, we ended up having to like replace in many cases. And really the challenge there was scaling. And, and I'd never really worked on that problem before because the company was growing really fast. They already had like 300,000 subscribers when I joined and they were adding subscribers like crazy. And, you know, now I think they're up to, I think they're like at 3 million. Yeah, 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 yeah. Flying. So, so going through that with like a, a big team and then building a new platform and kind of like rebuilding Crunchyroll's platform and all that work, like that scale type work was really attractive to me. Like I want, I wanted to have that experience. Yeah. Well, look, there's two things that really stood out to me from that time that we got to hang out there. Right. One that I want to talk about in a minute is that you had teams like distributed like all over the world and how, how, how to manage that. Right. I think that was such a unique problem for there. But my other favorite thing is when you had to like, when Warner Brothers came in to like buy the company and you had to go and explain to the, you know, these huge corporate uh, executives about what the hell uh, Crunchyroll was about. Tell us how you sort of framed up what it was about and why. Yeah. So, I mean, we definitely debated this one for a long time. Like, what should we do? We could do like a deck where it's like, hey, this is, you know, how many people we have. This is our personas. You know, this is how much usage we have. And I mean, all that data was already available prior to the acquisition. So we thought maybe do it that way. That doesn't work. Then we thought, well, maybe we could do like a prototype. But then it's like installing it, being in a meeting with like the head of AT&T and having to have some type of tech problem. Just can't even imagine what that would just be a disaster. So (laughs) then it was like, well, God, we should really do like story. Like if you really wanted to describe and really get into like, just get the feeling of what this experience is, we should do storyboarding or something like that. But then like putting up storyboards in a room, that's just not practical. Especially it's like a bad, bad version of Mad Men at this stage. Yeah, right? it's like an ad campaign or something. <laughs> so we thought, well, what about something you could hold in your hand, you could actually take it home so you don't have to go through it right there in the meeting, but you could kind of noodle on it a little bit and maybe even show it to friends or whatever and get feedback. And if you have kids, maybe they would understand what it is. And that was how we came up with the comic book idea. A comic book's really like a storyboard. It's just told in a, in a compelling there's, there's actually a narrative to it. You know, it's a compelling narrative. So we took one of the actual personas that we developed in the product team where we, we actually surveyed people and did like in-person interviews and all this stuff to do like persona development when we were doing our design for the apps. We took one of those personas from that exercise and then she became the main character of the comic book. And basically it was like her experience of like when she gets online Things like streaming, like co-viewing was a big part of the experience. Texting her friends, you know, saying that there's going to be the show tonight and then like firing up her, her screen and then like inviting them to watch at the same time. Like these were things we, we saw through ethnographic studies and we knew from people within the company that they were doing this type of stuff. More like a Twitch type of an experience as opposed to like Netflix or more of like a lean back type of thing. 
it's way more engaging. And so we, we kind of just like spelled that out over this whole kind of storyline. And yeah, it worked really well. So there's some moments when I, you know, work on projects where I'm like, this feels like so, so different and so, so right to do. And I think that was one of the moments I got most excited actually on anything. Like you're going into AT&T in this like billion dollar acquisition and you're sitting in front of these execs to explain a product that they probably have no idea what the thing is about. And we're going to show them a comic book, right? And it's just like, and I, I even remember that moment, like you could look in people's eyes in that team and they were like, it just felt so right, and, yeah. but so wrong. And for many totally. other people, you know, what, which is also representative of the company too, because anime on. in itself has that type of type of vibe. There's always something a little bit, it's right, but it's a little bit wrong, or it's, it's basically challenging the norms of, of society kind of thing. And the people within the company all had that kind of ethos as well. So it's like, yeah. Right on. I just, I've never seen something that crystallized the culture, not only of the company, but the industry and the product. I just thought it was like such a great manifestation of all these things like coming together in an artifact. I just wish more people did things like that in the product world, right? Yeah. So many people like play it so conventional with their like, here's the 10 slides you need to have in a pitch deck. Make sure that you talk about your total addressable market, blah, blah, blah. I'm already falling asleep. It's like, yeah, here's yeah. the four questions you're going to be asked in a SaaS business. It's like boring, you know, but like, yeah, this, this was one of those moments where I was just like, hell yeah. Like if this is helping them understand to like, get it, like, this is what this business is about. Here's what the customers care about. This is an artifact they're actually interested in, you know? And, yeah. As opposed to like the typical bloody MBA, put the numbers in a spreadsheet. It's a SaaS business of seven metrics I care about. Like, what's your growth next? Yeah, year? yeah. Like, it's yeah. just so, so different, right? Yeah. It's amazing how much you would think it's like the easier job to be, to do that type of work because it's creative in a way, but you just don't see it happening often. In companies, those types of people internally are not really raised to the level of, you know, where they can actually have that type of impact or visibility. You, know, you don't often see that in tech companies. Yeah, but I also I also think people are sort of a bit afraid to to take some bold steps. Yeah. You know, like it's easy to stick with the conventional. It's easy to have your 10 slides and your spreadsheet and and sort of like right. you know pitch about why this is a good thing to do. But that's showing up for me. That's like saying like this this is us. This is who we are. This is our culture. This is our product. This is our customer. This is what's unique about this business. If you want to go on the journey with us, if you want to take us from, you know, 300 to 3 million to 30 million, like th these are the people who are going to get us there. So are you in? That's the kind of yeah. question you're, I just love that, you know, and <laughs> I don't think most, I don't think most people do that anymore. Right. How could you encourage other people to take that path? Cause yeah. it felt yeah. so right in that moment. And there's subtleties going on there, right? Like it's, yeah. it is a crystallization of the the culture of the company, the culture of the, the customer, the, the yeah. things that are going on there, like how, what sort of helped you sort of unify that a little bit with the team? Because yeah. that, that's I think, really I mean, hard. I think you definitely have to have a willingness to take a risk, obviously, but not just risk for risk's sake. There has to be a bigger meaning to it, meaning if it doesn't work out the way you want, if it doesn't serve the purpose in the boardroom or whatever, it did serve the purpose of the, to your point, the culture. And I knew that it was something that people within the company would love. And so for me, it was already a win. And if, if it turned out the boardroom thing was a fail, 
that was okay for me because it's you know the, I guess it looks bad for me, but it was overall a net positive because it sort of like galvanized people behind it. So yeah, no, I I think people were cheering as you were like carrying a comic book yeah. up, up to like a <laughs> board meeting. Like why not? I love it. Yeah. So but, but but there was one other part I think not only that you learned it like I definitely saw you do really well a crunchy role now you're doing at the moment is sourcing talent from like all over the world right mm-hmm. and, and I think I think this is sort of like a top real interesting topic right now for folks right yeah. and you've built these sort of systems and mechanisms that you can find this like amazing talent no matter where they are yeah and I think many companies are struggling with that mm-hmm. so can can you share like you know a crunchy Rona, you were working with teams like right like from Estonia to San Francisco like 14 yeah. hour time crazy yeah. like managing mm-hmm. that the way I look at it as is you're literally you're just recruiting in a different place. Like rather than recruiting in the US region, you're recruiting in South America, but you do the same processes. So you still have interviews, you still look for not only their technical ability, but also culture fit. And you think of their personality exactly the same way. Like how is this person going to interact with this other person who I just hired? who I also don't know, but who's from South America, but she seems to have some managerial qualities. Maybe she could be the one that does the reporting, even though she's doing QA. And then, you know, he seems to be clearly, he's a leader, you know, the way that he acts, so he should be the tech lead. And then this person, you still have to go through the rigor of like code challenges. Like that's critical, obviously, when you're hiring engineers. So that's important. Like if you're just like, I want to build something, probably need to know something about engineering or somebody who can, who you can rely on to do the code challenges. But beyond that, it's really about constructing a team the same way as if you would hire somebody here. It's the same exact process. Me personally, right? Every, everybody who works with me is a gig worker. I have no employees. Yeah. I literally have just, I have people in Croatia, I have like people in Philippines, I have people in Canada. That's a, that's a, yeah. you know, like a, Literally, they're just like, they're all over the world, right? I just like, yeah. I need someone who's like my heist team. I need someone who can crack a safe. I need someone who can drive a car fast. And these people are sort of, you know, they're all over the place, you know? Yeah. And one, one of the most rewarding things for me in the last year has like built this team who've never met each other, who are totally independent, who really have no real affinity uh, apart from like, they're just working on projects like as we build things, Yeah, right? They're all friends on this sort of Slack channel that we created. Yeah, and, there you go. And, you know, we're like, we're, they're like making my business like run. And, yeah. and I love it, you know? And, well, I think, um, you know, we, talk, we talked about this before, which is, I don't know when it happened, but there's a generation now of people that have kind of like, I don't know where the cutoff is, but they've like grown up with all the information being fully available on the internet for everything. So really like they have all the same information we do about everything, right? So why would we have a barrier? Why would you want to say, oh, it, you can only have somebody that you work with that's within the barrier of the state, uh, you know, the United States. That's it. Or, or, or did the MBA make... at Stanford, right? Like, yeah, like, well, yeah, like, exactly. This, you know, like this is what I, is super exciting to me with that idea. You're saying like information's everywhere. So everyone has the information. Yeah. So how are you yeah, using I mean, the information? Encyclopedias were like a thing you would buy and put on your shelf. And you only people with encyclopedias actually had that information. That was actually true. But that's not how it is anymore. 
like again, one one of the things I've observed, and it sort of goes a little bit back as well. You're talking about in Crunchyroll, right? Like knitting systems together with different tools to create something even better, right? Like this is this is a fun topic for me because I yeah. this is another classic nomer, right? Like we've the best people, uh, only the best people work in I don't know, like these technical hubs, Silicon Valley, London, wherever these places are, you know, and yeah. they're they're deeply, uh, you know, like they're the smartest people, they know everything, and. And yet my experience about working with in a marketplace, again, almost back to your eBay days, yeah. like a marketplace of talent, you know, the people who actually know the best technologies who are most up to date with the cool, yeah. like my team come to me with, with ideas of going, hey, you should be using like this tool to do your you know, newsletters. You should be using this tool to run your SEO. And I'm, I'm sitting there going like, what the hell is this tool? I have no idea what it is. But yeah. suddenly like tasks that were like hard for me, I'm like, I'm an expert at, you know, yeah. because because their incentive is to be like up to date, like because right. it's a marketplace that they're it's, it's a talent marketplace they're yes. operating. I mean, if you think about where you're going with that, if you stay at a company for like two years and you're just focused on one area that you're working on within that company, even as an engineer, product, even product person, anybody in tech, you're probably totally behind the eight ball by the time you get out. I mean, when I say get out, I mean, move to another company or, or whatever. <laughs> Right, you're, yeah, you're, it's, it's escape your penance or, or your four-year lock-in for your your options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, you're probably totally behind. And so, how do you get caught up? Well, you bounce around, and then you probably, like in my case, I've been doing. I did some consulting after Crunchyroll, and I learned so much during that period of time, just because of all the new things that are out there. And now, working with this new team in South America, they're showing me stuff that's new, and new stuff is coming out like daily. No, I don't write tickets, but that's the thing that they, they do. And, and when they can not only write the tickets, but they can also think at a high level, that's when it's like, wow, this person's really impressive. And they're like that. They're all like that. Start maybe a little baby step before we get there. And it's like the types of companies that are funding these businesses are like, you know, hedge funds and like large, bigger than like super PE type of firm size. I guess those ones are pretty interesting to me because I like the whole experience of transformation I, I would say that that area is pretty interesting it's been great having you on the show i look look forward to see what you do next and thanks thanks for joining us thanks man see you guys next time